about um, righteousness. What do you need, baby? So last week when we were, um, we talked about righteousness and there's sort of a ditch on both sides of the road, right? We can fall into unrighteousness and we can fall into self-righteousness. And that's kind of what we're going to see again this week, but with a different subject. So Solomon spends basically the whole chapter of chapter 8 talking about wisdom, talking about what it's capable of, what it's not capable of. And really, and unfortunately, I think we think it can do a lot of things that it can't. Um, and we don't know what it can do. So we view wisdom, I think, just by the world standard. We don't, we don't really understand biblically um, what wisdom is all about. And so I spent this week in, in Houston. I was helping my mom with some stuff. Um, as, my, as I've mentioned before, my dad, he's sick. He's in a nursing home. Um, and so he's not at home anymore. And my mom, you know, up until like a year or two ago... My, my parents have been married for 40 some odd years, and basically, my dad did all, the, you know, anything that broke, my dad just fixed it. He knew how to do all of that stuff, and my mom knows how to do none of that stuff. And so now that he doesn't live at home anymore, it's like all these things break, and she's like, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to fix it. And so she's tried to hire plumbers, and they're terrible. And so anyway, I went down there, and I helped her out with a bunch of stuff. And I'm reminded, um, it, <laughs> my mom is a really funny uh, creature. She... Um, she <laughs> She holds a computer in her hand, right? She has an iPhone that's not just but a couple of years old. I don't know what version is, whatever. But it's like, I mean, it's better than any computer that was, you know, that's 10 years old or more. And she, I don't know, she loves the weather for some reason. And so she will, but she will like sit and watch the news for 30 minutes waiting for the weather to come on. And my mom lives in Houston, right? And so she's watching whatever, CBS or NBC or something. And so for like 30 minutes, we hear these like really horrible news stories over and over. It's like, mom, just look it up on your phone. Like I'm tired of listening to this nonsense coming off of the TV. And it's just like she has this phone and it does all of these things. And it's like she like in her mind, like, oh, all it really does is make phone calls. Like, um, and, and this is how kind of I thought of, I, it, it reminded me of this idea of, of wisdom. Like it's like having a cell phone and thinking that it can only do two things. It can make phone calls and it can cure cancer, right? I mean, how foolish would we be if that's what we thought a phone could do? And so you're, you're, you're trying to do all these other things in your life that your phone can make easier. Like you can look up any, answer any question that you want with a cell phone, and it can do things, and it can give you information, it can give you directions. I mean, we went, to, we were going to this plumbing supply store so I could fix something, and she went to the wrong one, and she's like, well, this other one, I don't know how to get there. Like, you have, your phone is right in front of you. Just type it in, it'll tell you, like, how, and I did it for her, and she was amazed that it, it's like, turn right, and she's like, what, what's going on here? Like, she just, like, had no idea that it could do that. And a lot of the times, like, this is how we understand wisdom. We don't know all of the good things it can do, but how foolish would it be if you thought, like, you went to the doctor and they said, hey, like, you're in early stages of this cancer. We can do a surgery and a few procedures, and it'll be done, and we'll fix it. Like, we caught it early. Everything will be fine. And you're like, no, 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 I'm just going to go home and put my cell phone on it, and that will cure it, and it will be fine. And this is like how we understand wisdom. We don't know all of the things that it can do, and we think it can do things that it can't do. 
And so this is what Solomon is kind of, he's going he's gonna to explain this to us um, in chapter 8. And so there's two like main things that he wants us to see. Um, and this is, the, these are the things. And the problem is, once again, is that if we're not walking and understanding wisdom correctly, we fall into a ditch on one side or the other, right? We, we think it could do things it can't, or we don't know all of the things that it can do. Just in chapter 7, last week that we looked at, Solomon tells us, wisdom gives you more strength than ten men in a city. Can you imagine if you had control and power over the entire city council of just Durango? Right? If you, if you basically had the ability to do whatever you wanted within that city, change it however you wanted, Solomon tells us that wisdom is more powerful than that. That wisdom is better than, the, than your deepest desire. That's what Proverbs tells us. I don't know. Everybody has a different one, probably. Right? We all have different desires. We all have different things that we want in our life. And Solomon says, that thing that you desire the most, wisdom is greater than that. He says wisdom is more valuable than gold. And it's, and it's sweeter than honey. We go through honey at my house like it's water. I mean, it's just we, we buy like pounds of it at a time. We eat it on everything that we do. And occasionally, right, I'm like spreading it on the toast for the kids in the morning and there's a little bit left. And I like foolishly like, ah, oh, yeah, I'll just lick that off. And just like, man, like there's something. I mean, it's, it's the sweetest thing I've ever tasted just on its own. Like to me, a spoonful of honey is sweeter than a spoonful of sugar. Like it is the sweetest thing I've ever had. And Solomon is telling us like it is sweeter than that. It's better. I mean, given the choice of a pile of gold or a pile of wisdom, what would you take? If I hadn't just said to you that Proverbs tells us that wisdom is better than gold, most of us by instinctually would be like, well, yeah, give me, give me the gold. I can buy a bunch of books of that and I can gain wisdom. Right? We, we don't quite understand what wisdom is capable of. We undervalue it and at the same time, we overvalue it. We don't know what it's capable of, but at the same time, we think that it's capable of something that it's not. How many times when something goes wrong in your life or in the life of somebody around you, somebody looks to you. This is especially true with a non-Christian, right? They know you're a Christian, something happens, and they come to you specifically. Why would God allow that to happen? As if wisdom can answer that question for us. Solomon tells us in the last part of chapter 8 that it can't. It's not, wisdom is, cannot possibly answer how God does things and why he does things. And so we want to explore both of these things. I want to, this morning, I think it's important that we, that we value wisdom correctly. That we understand what it's capable of and that we understand what it's not. Because if we, if we don't, like, we're missing out on one of the hugest blessings that God has for us. And that is that he will grant us wisdom if we ask for it. But if we're not using it right, we'll feel as if it's not there. We'll feel as if we don't have it. So we start off the chapter. Solomon asks this rhetorical question. He says, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Now, I don't think that Solomon is asking for an answer, right? He's, he's telling us to contemplate. Think about the people in your life who are the wisest people that you know. Usually it's like 
one or maybe two people that we have in our life that we just think, man, like that guy, that, that lady, she has wisdom beyond anything I've ever understood or known in my life. It's not like our life is really full of those people most of the time. Right? We have one or two people and we just think, if I ever have a question about something, like that's the guy that I go to. That's the woman that I ask about this. Like, wisdom is a rare thing. How great is it to have that person in your life with all of that wisdom? This once again kind of, I mean, being in Houston, being around my dad, like a lot of things this week sort of reminded me of him and that idea that he like sort of knew how to do everything. When I was a kid, like I just had this idea of my dad as like he, he, he knows everything. Every question that I ever had and even in, into, into my adult years, like, I mean, plumbing, you know, sheetrock, welding, car mechanic, like he just knew how to do everything. And so anytime I had a problem, I'd just call my dad, he would know the answer. And like what, it, it was such a blessing to have that in my life for as long as I had it. And part of that grieving process of like starting to recognize that I'm losing my dad, that's a big part of it for me. It's like losing somebody in my life who had a ton of wisdom. Because it is a valuable, valuable thing. What else does Solomon say right here at the beginning? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Think about all of the times when Moses goes in and sees God and then comes out. Do you think he's frowning? In fact, what does the Bible tell us about what he looks like when he steps out of the cleft of that rock, when he's, when he's with God? He's shining, right? He's aglow with the glory of God, and he didn't even get to see him firsthand but he's with him and just being in his presence and being in the presence of wisdom made him shine made his his face turn up so i ask you how excited are you when god teaches you something so you're reading your bible you're reading a book or something and god just does one of those sort of epiphany moments maybe you're reading a passage that you've read a hundred times and your whole life is like i've never understood what this means and you read it again and the Lord just, bam, miracles some wisdom right into your brain. And all of a sudden, you understand. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, I finally get this. I finally understand. Like, wow, this is, for me, I remember as, um, you know, I was in college and going, and going through Old Testament. And that crazy story of Abraham going to sleep. And the, the animals are cut in half. And then there's fire and smoke and it floats between the two. And Abraham wakes up and you're like, what in the world was that? Something. I missed it, right? There's some kind of cultural thing that I don't understand in this story. And it was years before I understood that story. And it was years before I understood that, like, the, the covenant was that, that that's what you do. Is what, you, what the people would do is if you make a deal with somebody... Right? They didn't have computers to write it all out and save it. They would just say, look, here we go. We're going to take some animals. We're going to cut them in half. We're going to put them in two piles, and we're going to walk between them. And if I don't do my part, I will be like the animals. Cut me in half. Kill me, in other words, right? And, if you don't, and then the other person would walk through, and if you don't do your part, same thing. It's a covenant of death, right? We, are going to, we agree to do whatever it is we're going to do, and if I don't do my part, I die. And if you don't do your part, you die. And in that story, God is represented by smoke and fire over and over and over again in the Old Testament, right? How does he lead Israel through the desert? Smoke and fire. That's, who he, that's part of his identity, right? 
And does Abraham walk through those pieces? No, only the smoke and fire does. God had just promised to Abraham, I will bless the entire world from your offspring. He made a promise to him, and then God walked through the pieces, and Abraham didn't. And when, I, when all of that came clear, it's like, the wisdom from that, it leaves a smile on your face. Like, how could your face be turned down, right? How could your face be hardened when God has just granted you a dollop of wisdom? And that's just one little bitty piece of one little bitty chapter in the Bible, right? And, when, and so when we gain wisdom from the Lord... No matter how hard your face was, no matter how bad of a mood you were in before that happened, it'll destroy that bad mood in an instant. It does something to us. Gaining wisdom from God changes our whole attitude. It, cha- it makes us better, better people to be around. How many of you know somebody who is the opposite of those two things? Their face isn't shining. Their face is hardened. You try and be nice to them, and they just give you a grimace. We don't, we don't want to be around that kind of person, and sometimes we are that person, right? Whatever, whatever might be going on, it might cause us and tempt us to want to be like that. And God is saying wisdom will break that down. You learn something new and real and true about who God is. It doesn't matter how bad of a day you're having. It will bring you around. It will give you joy that you didn't know you could have. The second thing to see is that wisdom submits to authority. So Solomon tells us, right? Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The word of the king is supreme. And who can say to him, what are you doing? Now, this is a little bit self-serving, right? If Solomon is the one writing this, which I'm pretty sure he is, he was the king. So we might look at him and be like, all right, that's, that's like, that's, I mean, a lot of the times um, in the, over the years, if I've been asked to go and preach um, in the place of another pastor, I try to preach about submitting to your elders because that's hard. If Colby stands up here and preaches about submitting to your elders, you think, ah, there's a little bit of self-serving in that. Even though it's true, like, it's hard for us to swallow. And so we read this and think, ah, okay, maybe, but you're the king, and you're the one who's telling the people, like, are you doing this just because you want everybody to do what you say, or is there really value to this? And of course there's value to this, right? Of course there's goodness in submitting to the authority that we have in our lives, so over the years, while we were planning the church, I was just working sort of part-time jobs in, 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 um, along with pastoring, and I was working retail a lot of the times, and I worked at Home Depot for a number of years. And that place is just like a revolving door of college students, right? Especially because I worked down where you had to lift all the heavy stuff. And so they just would hire these 20-year-old guys, and they were coming through, and they'd last a month, maybe two, and then they're out. And most of the time, it was because... They thought that they knew better than the bosses, right? They would look at, they would, we'd be given a task, and they'd be like, oh, that's stupid, I'm not doing that, right? They would look at authority, and they would say, no, they're dumb, I'm right, they're wrong, I'm correct, I will not do what they say, buck authority, get fired. I saw it over, I mean, I worked there for like three years. I mean, I, I bet you 20, I bet you I saw 20 young, young men come through that place and just do that, and it's like, and what, when we see that, what do we, what do we usually, like, think about the person? Like, just grow up, man, right? That's what we, like, grow up in the sense of 
Who are the wisest people, that, at least generally speaking in society, who are the ones who we deem as wise? The older members of our society, they've lived life, they've seen a lot, they've learned a lot. And so these two things are connected, right? We think, grow up. In other words, when we say that, we think, gain some wisdom. You're a fool if you just want to fight back against all authority that has been put into your life. It's not going to get you anywhere. We look at the naive, the naive youngster and we say this and we say, man, gain some wisdom. I see it in my kids and that's, I mean, I, I realized this week like 75% of parenting, maybe more, is just teaching your kids to respect authority and to submit to it, right? Don't do that thing. Don't jump on the couch. Not because I believe that they're really going to break my couch. I mean, I mean, I hope that they won't, and I don't want them to fall off and bonk their head. But, like, part of it is just there are rules, and you have to live by them. And one of the best things that you can learn is how to submit to authority. Little guys, kids, listen to me. Listen, to the, you're, like, the number one job in your household is to submit to your parents. Right? Ephesians says, children, submit to the authority, for this is what is good for you. If you don't memorize any other verse in your childhood, maybe that's the one, right? You probably all got John 3.16, but then maybe add that one to it. It's hard to do. I'm not looking at you and saying, why aren't you doing this? It's so easy. I understand. It's hard to do. Kids, it's hard. Why? Not just because you want to do what you want to do, but it's also true that your parents are going to make mistakes. They're going to say things and they're going to do things in your life and you think, why should I submit to them? They're not perfect. Of course, they're not perfect. And kids are obviously not the only ones who push back. As adults, we'd be like, yeah, you stinking kids. Come on, get with it, right? But we're the same way. There's this rebellious spirit in us. When things, when people try to tell us what to do, they try to... Try to, to Tell us when we're wrong. We want to push back immediately. Our initial gut reaction is to say, no, I'm not the one who's wrong. You're the one who's wrong. And fight back and come up with excuses and on and on and on. And I didn't ever think, this was a little piece of wisdom that the Lord gave. I had never thought about the first sin under these terms before. But like thinking about it, however many hundreds of trees are in the garden, right? And there's only one of them that God tells them to say no to. And this is the part, this is the piece of that puzzle that I never really considered and never thought of. And it's this, is that they were not corrupted yet, and yet they still couldn't resist rebellion. Adam and Eve were still pure and perfect in their creation. And yet, and there's a hundred yeses or more, and there's only one no. Like, our life is far more difficult than that. How many no's are in your life based off of God's commands? There's like 600 some odd laws in the Old Testament alone. And you and I are broken because we're fallen and we have, we have taken on the sin nature of Adam and Eve, right? So we have a lot of marks against us. If they weren't going to succeed, like what chance do you have when it comes to fighting the rebellion, fighting that rebellious spirit? And so if 75% of my job is teaching my kids to obey authority, the other 25% or probably more is to teach them what authority they should be obeying, right? The authority of the Bible, the authority of God, not just any authority, 
but God's word. Because God has set up this world. This is how he has set it up. There are, there is an authority structure. If you want to push back against that, you're pushing back against the design that God created. If you think back once again to Genesis chapter 1, God does a lot of things, and then he gives the same tasks to Adam and Eve. So God forms and fills in the first six days of creation, right? He forms out of the darkness. He forms out of nothing. He forms the earth. He forms all this stuff, and then what does he do? He fills it all up. Plants trees. Plants, you know, it brings in the animals. brings in all of the stuff in the sea. He forms and he fills. And then what command does he give to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God names Adam and Eve, and what is one of the tasks that he gives to Adam in the garden? To name the animals, right? There's an authority structure. God is doing things, and then he gives us authority to do things. We rule over his creation, with him ruling over us. From the very beginning, God has created this world with an authority structure. To push back against that is to push against God's design. Now, I know you're probably thinking, okay, so then what about? What about when the authority is broken? What about when the authority is telling me to do something that I shouldn't do? What do we do then? Is this, is this an absolute statement, right? Our current administration it t- it says a lot of things that are against the Bible, right? It tells us a lot of things are good that we know are not good. And so what do we do with this? And the guarantee is that there will be times in your life when the authority structure, when the authority in your life is telling you to do something and it's unfair or it's wrong. Once again, kids, your parents are going to be wrong. That doesn't give you the right to disobey them. It doesn't mean that you just get to say, oh, well, my mom made a mistake. She yelled at me when she shouldn't have. She got angry when she shouldn't have. I don't have to obey her anymore. She sinned. Look at that. No. Everybody, every authority structure, every authority figure in your life from time to time is going to make a mistake. Cops are going to make mistakes if they pull you over for the wrong thing. Judges and bosses, everybody is going to make a mistake. This does not give us license to rebel. We're still called to submit. There is no exception. And what I mean is, if an authority structure is telling you to do something that is, that is sinful... That isn't your right to rebel, right? You're not rebelling in that if you disagree or if you disobey. Daniel was not rebelling when the king said, no more praying. He continued to pray, right? That's not a rebellion. That's still him submitting to authority. What he had to do was surpass one level of the authority and get to the ultimate authority. But he's still submitting to God. It's not rebellion to say, you have told me to do something that God has forbidden me from doing. I submit to God. I will not submit to you. It's still submission. It's still the authority structure is in place. There's that famous scene in Acts, right, where Peter, um, I can't remember who all is with him, but he's there and he's brought in before the Sanhedrin and what do they tell him? Stop preaching the name of Jesus. And what does Peter say? Oh, well, 
you're the Sanhedrin. I, best, I guess I better do that. He says, whose law am I going to obey? Man's law or God's law, right? And he keeps on preaching. There is a time and a place where we disobey, and it's only if the authority has told us to do something opposite. Now, that's where we want to jump, right? When we talk about submitting to the king, we automatically want to be like, but what about? But what about this time? And what about this? But the reality is, 95% of the time or probably more, the authority in our life is something worth submitting to. It's something worth obeying. Most of the time, when you get pulled over, you are doing something wrong. Speeding or ran a stop sign or whatever, right? I mean, how, can you think how many times in your life have you gotten a ticket and you were 100% innocent of doing anything wrong in your car? Probably, maybe once, I don't know. I mean, most of the time, we're in the wrong. Most of the time, when you're reprimanded by a boss or some kind of authority figure, you, you probably needed that. At least it's from, I'll just speak for myself. You, you guys are probably better than me. All, I would say every time I've ever been pulled over, it's because I was doing something wrong. Every time I've ever been chewed out by a boss or some authority figure, it's because I was doing something wrong. I needed it. And so here's a question that he asked, and one that we should be thinking about too. Do you run away from that? This is what verse 3 says. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. When an authority figure comes to you and reprimands you, do you learn from it, or do you try to get away from that as quickly as possible? Kids, are you counting down the days where you no longer have to live at home, where you can do whatever you want and not what mom and dad tell you? In the last year, Micaiah is eight. He has more than once said to us, I can't wait till I live on my own so I can play video games all day. Like, when that day comes, they, like, my encouragement to you, kids living in your home, don't count down the days. Don't be longing for the day when you are living out on your own. But try to take in as much wisdom as you can from your parents. They will make mistakes, and you can learn from that, right? My parents made mistakes, and I love them to death. And I try to learn from those mistakes and not do the same thing. And they probably did the same thing. Kids, learn from your parents Adults, learn from those bosses who may reprimand you. Don't run away from it, but try and gain wisdom from it when it happens. The second big section is that the wise will do well in the sight of God. So this is verses 10 to 13. Then I saw the wicked buried they used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. But this is also vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of a man is fully set to do evil, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Now, sometimes it may seem like from the outside that the evil person is doing well, that they're gaining, right? That they're the ones who have more money, that they're the ones who have more stuff or whatever it is. And, and Solomon tells us this is vanity. 
It's grasping after a vapor. Because all, the only thing that can be gained through evil has already been marked as something that is non-fulfilling. Whether that be power, status, money. Wisdom doesn't offer those vain pursuits. Wisdom tells us that those things will not fulfill us. Wisdom tells us <coughs> that those are not the things that we should be seeking after. The man who fears God is wise, right? This is how Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the man who fears God is wise. And the man who fears God, it will go well for him. Now the definition of going well has nothing to do with health or wealth or status or respect. That is not what the Bible, that is not how the Bible defines going well. This doesn't mean that God may not give you some of those things as a gift freely. But that's not how God defines a life that is going well. So the wise man will fear God and his life will go well. But the wicked man does not fear God and wants to become God himself. And in those pursuits, things don't go well, right? And so we, this is not a hard concept to understand. This is very simple. The Bible is very clear about this. Our problem is, is that we want to trust our own judgment over God's wisdom. And what I mean by that is we say, yeah, I, I read that, but that doesn't seem like the way that it's happening in this world. That doesn't seem to be true based off of my observations of the people around me. As if we have this deep, like, understanding of everything that's going on. Because we know lots of people who are not Christians, who are pursuing evil things, and they present themselves as being happy and fulfilled and their life is going so well and we see the pictures that they post and the things that they say in public we think that's like one of the evilest guys i know and look you're telling me that his life is not going well but look at this look at this string of pictures and the things that i see and the, the times that i've spent with him and all the bragging that they're doing about all the things that they have life seems to be going really well for that guy and I'll prove it to you that that's how we think. How many of you, when you heard that Robin Williams committed suicide, were shocked by that? that was a year, I don't know how long ago that was, but five or six years ago. How many of you are like, well, of course. He's not a man pursuing God. He's doing evil things. His life cannot be going well. But when we hear about people who we think have it all, and they end their own life, and we think, whoa, why on earth would he have done that? He has the respect of all of Hollywood and everybody sees thinks that he's one of the greatest comedians in the world. He has more money than anybody can spend. He can buy anything that he wants. Everybody loves him. He is a beloved man in our whole country. He's one of the most well-known names. Why would he commit suicide? That was, our, that was your reaction, was it not? Right? Because we, we hear this, but we don't really believe it. We don't understand what's going on here. That the way God describes these things is different than the way that we perceive them.
It's foolish to think that your perception or that my perception is stronger than the wisdom of God. And yet we allow ourselves into it. We allow ourselves to believe that. And so really the challenge for all of us this morning is to hear these words and then say, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to believe that it's true even when my own self-perception of the things that I see, the way I understand the world, doesn't seem to line up with this. Guess what? When your perception or my perception, when we think that the world is, is operating differently than the way the Bible describes it, we are wrong and the Bible is correct every time. And that's hard. I mean, that, that's hard, right? Because we, that means we have to come back to this regularly every time we see somebody who we know is walking in evil ways and seems to be happy and seems that their life is going well and is perfect. We have to remind ourselves that's not true. Not so that we can feel bigger than them or better than them, but it will motivate us to go to them with the gospel. It will remind us that those things are not fulfilling the person. That only Jesus can do that. And the last thing we see this morning is the limits of wisdom. Right, so the, all of the things that wisdom can do, well, not all. I mean, he gives us just a few examples. A few things that wisdom can do that we maybe we're not thinking clearly about. But here's the thing that we think wisdom can do, and it can't. 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Do you understand what that means? The righteous person is following God, is serving Him, and it seems like He's being rewarded as if He is a wicked person. And the wicked is running around ignoring God, thinking that they are God, and it seems to be that they're receiving the rewards of the righteous. Verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in all of his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the works of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We look at the world and it seems disordered sometimes. We see babies being murdered in the womb. And we say, how is God in control? And we see things that are opposite of the way that they should be. The righteous man seems to be getting the reward of the wicked. And the wicked man seems to be getting the reward of the righteous. And it is futility. It is vanity to wander, walk around questioning God. God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? Why would you let this happen? And all of those questions come from a misunderstanding of what, what it looks like for your life to go well. Because life going well is not defined by health and wealth and prosperity and an easy life and the smooth, flat, easy road to walk, right? It's the crooked path. That's what God has placed before us. 
He commands us to walk it. And when we walk it, our life goes well. It doesn't go easily. It's not simple, but it's going well because we are doing what God is commanding us to do. And so Solomon brings us around again and again and again to this point. If, you are consu- if your life is consumed by asking God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? You're, you missed it. Stop it. You're not going to find out. No amount of wisdom is going to give you that answer. What do we do instead? We trust in the Lord. We eat. We drink. We find joy in this life. We want to overcomplicate things. We want to understand everything there is. We want to know why and how God is doing the things that he's doing. Now, sometimes that is sparked by curiosity. But I would say that 95% of the times we ask those questions, it's in an accusatory manner. C.S. Lewis wrote this book years ago called God in the Dock, right? And that's a British term. God is being put on trial. And so he goes through all of these things, and he's making the point that this is where humanity has come to. We have removed God from the seat of judgment, and we are trying to be the seat. We are trying to be the judge, and we are asking him questions as if he is in the witness chair. We have flipped everything backwards. God is the judge. God is the king. He is the one who does whatever he wills. Our job and our role in this world is to submit to his authority, to love him, to trust him, no matter what comes our way, to eat, to drink, and to find joy in this life. And there's one more piece, right? It's the cornerstone. It's the most important piece. Because here's the thing. Without Christ, even that life is unfulfilling. A man who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't believe in Jesus, who just eats and drinks and tries to find joy, is not going to find it. It's not a life of joy. It's not a life of fulfillment. Christ has to be within that. You see, if we are trusting in Christ for our salvation... If we believe what we say we believe about the cross, about about Christ's death and resurrection, that he gave up all that he gave up so that we could be saved, how could we ever think that something happening in our life is God being mean to us or God being unfair to us? He has made the ultimate sacrifice. He has shown love and kindness beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. If you're tempted... To walk through this life questioning God and demanding answers from him about why things are happening and how is he doing this and how are you fixing this and what are you doing about this injustice and this injustice and all of these things that we think we have wisdom about. Go back to the cross every time. Remember the sacrifice that Christ has made and it will remind you that God loves you. That he is in control and that he does things in a way that you would never expect him to do it. Because you see, when we, if it were possible to read the Old Testament, not knowing the truth of Jesus, not knowing what is coming after, we would expect Christ to come down sword and shield blazing and eliminate 
the sin of this world, right? To, to gather Israel back to himself, to destroy the Roman Empire, to set up the nation of Israel again. If we're reading and we don't really have deep understanding, we wouldn't expect him to come and be born in a manger. We wouldn't expect him to come and be humble and to be poor and to walk around with nowhere to lay his own head and to ultimately allow people to nail him to a cross, that he would be buried and resurrected. That is not what we would have done. That's not how we would have laid it out, right? God's wisdom is far different than ours. It's far better than ours. It's far greater. So my question, my challenge to you this morning is are you going to trust in God's wisdom or are you going to trust in your own perception? For the evil man, it does not go well. But when we do what God is calling us to do, when we follow after him, when we live our life the way that he has commanded us to, it will go well for you. Not by the world's standards, but by God's standards. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And sometimes, Lord, we... We overstep our bounds and we overstep the authority that you have in our life. And we ask you questions maybe that we shouldn't. Lord, we are so grateful that you are patient with us and that you are kind. Lord, that you can bring us to a place where we remember that you are in control and that we are not. Lord, my hope this morning is that we can grasp on to wisdom, that we can pursue it where we should. When it comes to reading your word and it comes to finding out the things that you have revealed to us and deeply understand those things, Lord, that we would pursue that wisdom and that we would not pursue the wisdom that no man can find out. We would spend our time well Lord, help us to remember that when we follow after you, you have promised us that our life will go well by your standards. It may not look like the way we wanted it to. It may not, our children may not grow up to be exactly what we were hoping for them, but that if they are following you, their life will go well, that we can teach them that, that we can teach them about submission. Lord, there's so many caveats and, and layers to understanding what it means to pursue wisdom and to pursue it rightly. Lord, guide us in this. You've given us the Holy Spirit. We ask that he would lead us into true wisdom, that we would forsake pursuing any level of wisdom that is foolishness, and that we would be seeking after you only. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.